The Gist is sponsored by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. Try the new Squarespace 7 and get 10% off when you visit squarespace.com and enter offer code GIST. And buy The Great Courses, engaging audio and video lectures taught by top professors. Courses like Fundamentals of Photography. Right now, get 80% off the original price when you visit thegreatcourses.com slash GIST. It's Thursday, March 5th, 2015. From Slate, it's the GIST. I'm Mike Pesca. The swath of sleet and snow continues to crawl southward over the mid-Atlantic and now pushes across Virginia. Also, heavy rain and snow are in the forecast for Hawaii. It happens sometimes. It actually happens quite often. It snows way high up in the mountains in Hawaii, but it's going to be snowing lower. That's the snow in Hawaii. There's snow everywhere. It's been a very snowy winter. 100 inches in Boston. We're getting maybe close to 50 in New York City. And oh, how we talk when we talk about the snow. The massive winter storm. Locally heavy snows. Significant snow. So the northerly wind across the area here. The wintry mix that was dumped on our roads. Significant snowfall possibility. The storm system is pulling away. Major storm potential. The wintry weather. Blizzard potential. And this stuff isn't just fluffy. It is downright relentless. It seems we fear the snow or at least are a little depressed by it. We definitely don't look at the snow as cool or cutting edge. But you're wrong. Oh, so wrong. Let's think of snow as the next great app. It's like the Uber for little flakes falling from the sky. Think about the way we could talk about the snow if we were willing to grasp the innovation that it represents. So we invent phrases like wintry mix or weather event. Just let it go with snow. This is snow 2.0. So why? Because snow is disruptive. Snow is highly individuated. Snow, it allows you to leave a big footprint. And after a time, we realize it really is groundbreaking. I was walking through the streets of New York looking at how it clung to the scaffolding because snow is sticky. And I realized that it had cross-platform applicability. Now, because of the snow, those platforms don't appear scalable. But if there's enough of it, it is immersive. Sure, snow is top-down, not bottom-up. But if the weather is cold enough, it does create an environment where things go viral. Snow may not interact well with mobile devices, but we're developing technology to address that. Snow, it's a game-changer, and it's in the cloud. On the show today, I spiel about a nearly 30-year-old TV special that I just found on YouTube. It is pretty life-changing, as is the insight of my next guest, Harry Enton, of the website 538. As with a booted foot on a snowbank, Harry is with numbers. He crunches them. And today we ask him to look at the unmeltable piles of presidential candidates and evaluate them based on things like fundraising, home state polls, and what we might call in the sports world, strength of schedule. So when you think about snow day activities or things to do on a snow day, what comes up? Board games. It's always board games. I don't know why. It's always something that has to do with, you know, hunkering down and putting it on a floor, maybe not being dependent on something that plugs in. Well, listen. For most of us, even if it blizzards, we're going to have power. And even if we don't, you know, a lot of our devices work on batteries. So just build a website. Use the time to build a website about board games. That's a free idea. You could take that. And when you're building your website, you could use Squarespace. Squarespace is simple, powerful, and beautiful. 24-7 live chat and email support to start a trial with no credit card required. And to build your website today or maybe tomorrow if it snows really bad. 
You can sign up for Squarespace and make sure to use the offer code GIST to get 10% off your first purchase. That's squarespace.com and enter the offer code GIST. Squarespace, build it beautiful. So last elections, we used to have Harry Enton of 538 here to break down the poll numbers. And Harry's here again. Hello, Harry. Hello, sir. And so 538 is this great site because it is all about empirical evidence and numbers. And you look at political numbers. I know you also love weather numbers. But a lot that they do has to do with sports. And it occurred to me, tell me if you agree with this, that the way we talk about politics is sort of the way we talked about baseball in like 1975. We just weren't very sophisticated in terms of the numbers. And Nate, who uh, Nate Silver, who founded the site, has sought to reform that. So, I mean, where do you think we are on politics? Are we sophisticated, getting more sophisticated? I think this is an example where actually the campaigns are getting much more sophisticated than the public consumers are. So we're at a point whereby, you know, Obama's campaign built these elaborate models that, you know, make the public stuff look quite crummy by comparison. But the public is catching up slowly but surely. I'd say we're probably where we were in 1995, perhaps, okay. if we're doing baseball. But I do think the media conversation around the chances of candidates are concerned with things like he did well in the Iowa straw poll. Who cares? Or, you know, she's got a lot of momentum behind her. Or he gave a speech that knocked it out of the park. You know, the way we talked about this guy looks good in spring training. And, you know, I like the cut of his jib and uniform. So what I wanted to do with you is to kind of get this idea of of how we evaluate a sports team using some of the rubrics like strength of schedule and apply it to some of the mm, 13 people who've said that they'd like to be president on the Republican ticket, maybe another five like Governor's Mike Pence, who maybe other people want to draft. So let's go through some of these rubrics. First of all, people talk about the money primary. It is important. It's not dispositive. Based on past performance, who among our candidates is good at raising money and isn't? And I'll start with this. Everyone says Jeb Bush is the best at it, is he? Yeah, I I think he he is. I mean, keep in mind, Jeb Bush hasn't run for an office since 2002. Mm -hmm. But based upon all the reports we're hearing, based upon the fact that he's going to Chris Christie's backyard in New Jersey and just crushing Christie and going to all these East Coast donors, he'll raise a lot of money. The Bush name is a lot. Texas, Florida, New York covers all those big money bases. So who else is good? Who in the field is strong in the money department? Well, I would say that in the money department, I'd certainly be looking at somebody like Scott Walker. Remember, he raised upwards of $25 million when he ran for governor last time around. He is going to the same places. I read an interesting little article today about how, in fact, Christie's second choicers, the people who are not going to go for Christie, a lot of them may actually not be Jeb people, but they may end up being Scott Walker people. Similar profiles in a way. I mean, they conduct themselves differently, but they're governors and they're executives and they both maybe butted heads with unions, one much harder of a butt. All right, let's keep going down the money list. So I would say that another one that I'd be looking at and sort of my third guy, and you'll notice that this is actually quite well correlated with who I think will probably do well in the primary is Marco Rubio. Remember, he raised a ton of money going into 2010. He ended up beating Charlie Crist by about 20 points in Florida. You know, he got that split with Meek and Crist, but still it was a very, very impressive victory. And I think a lot of people who are looking sort of that new generation Republican, someone will go to Walker, but someone will go to Rubio. Are any of these guys sort of underperforming their popularity? Um, Someone who maybe is showing higher in the polls, but weaker in the pockets? I would say that somebody like that would be Mike Huckabee. Yeah. Um, I would say that actually describes social conservatives often. Yeah. Mike Huckabee, 
Huckabee, who, you know, had a lot of problems raising money in 2008. And, and one of the things that we're really going to be looking at, whether to take him seriously or not, is whether or not he can go out and actually raise money. Raising money is very difficult. You know, you have to glad hand all these politicians. And, you know, one person who I think that we're going to think might raise a lot of money, but I'm sort of a little skeptical about is somebody like Rand Paul. You know, they do these money bombs. You know, you send out these emails. Oh, we're going to raise. We want to raise two million dollars by midnight. Help us do it. Right. You know, he does. I cover the world of public radio. I get that. Right. <laughs> exactly. Right. It's a PBS telethon. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, the fact of the matter is, Rand Paul is not going to have these big time donors. Not going to be able to raise a ton of money through these super PACs. So that's somebody who I'd be very skeptical about being able to raise enough money to really have a really strong bid going forward, even if the polls right now suggest he could be a viable candidate. Uh, okay. So in uh, the conception that I put forward that we're speaking about the chances of candidates like they talked about baseball in 1995, they do attach some numbers and numbers are where they are in polls right now, what their popularity is today. You'll often hear that. He has you know, this kind of favorable rating, that kind of favorable rating. That's not the best way necessarily to rank popularity. What do you do to figure that out? Well, what I sort of thought about is let's look at the people who know these candidates best. Mm -hmm. That is their home state voters and say, okay, if you're a Republican in Texas, you're probably going to be fairly popular, but let's subtract out that fact that Republicans generally do well in Texas by looking at the past presidential vote okay. and sort of say, how much more popular are you right now or were you the last time you held office versus that vote? Okay. So sort of the vote you got minus the vote the part, the presidential candidate from your party got? Uh, essentially, yeah. But we're going to be looking specifically at those approval ratings so that somebody, for instance, like Chris Christie did very, very well in 2013. But right now, his approval ratings have slid significantly further south since that point. So All we're right. going to be looking at those last approval ratings. Take me down the list a little bit. So, you know, one of the people, and I think this is part of the reason why we're looking at a potential, you said draft movement. I think he very well may run without a draft movement, although we'll see, is Mike Pence, who had a very, very, very high approval rating as Indiana's governor. Even though Indiana is a Republican state, his net approval rating is significantly higher than you would expect. So he actually does the best relative to where you'd expect. Who on this popularity measure, who else pops either uh, doing well or poorly? Uh, I would say that, you know, two people who pop for me are somebody like Jeb Bush, who left office with very good approval ratings down in Florida. Um, and that's a, you know, he was well into the mid, mid-20s mid for the number of people who liked him versus disliked yeah, him. Yeah, a net, a plus of 20. Yeah. A plus of 20. And then, you know, the other one that I would sort of be looking at, in, and, and this speaks to why I think, you know, he could go ahead and win Iowa. Uh, remember, Mike Huckabee left office with a very good approval rating in the state of Arkansas, and he did so when Democrats were still winning office statewide. You know, after Huckabee left... Um, a Democrat took over as governor and Huckabee was still a fairly popular name. And then he crushed in the Republican primary down there. And it, I think it illustrates somebody who can appeal to a wide swath of people, even if they're more conservative than you might think. And that's why I certainly wouldn't count Huckabee out winning a few caucuses or primaries, even if he doesn't have a ton of money. So we talked about money. We talked about popularity. Last thing I want to talk about what I'm calling strength of schedule. I mean, in sports, there might be two undefeated teams, but if one team has beaten a bunch of other great teams and our second team beat up the classic is the little sisters of the poor, that's what they always use, you have to uh, rank 
I'm going to say it, Kentucky, a little better. So who has a good strength of schedule? Who's beaten good opponents and who has coasted by beating just guys in cheap suits? I would say, you know, if I'm looking for somebody who beat top opponents, uh, Scott Walker. I mean, okay. He, no, I didn't beat him by that much. No. But he beat him often because he's won three elections in like the last 18 or 20 months. Right. He's won three elections in a swing state. He beat Tom Barrett twice, who was the mayor of Milwaukee. Um he was able to win and win six, seven points in a state that hasn't voted Republican since 1984. So if I'm looking at someone who was able to beat somebody who was a good candidate, I'd be looking at somebody like Scott Walker. I'd also probably be looking again at somebody like, you know, Jeb Bush. He beat Buddy McKay, who was a popular lieutenant governor. He beat Bill McBride, who was a fairly popular candidate down in Florida. Um, but on the other end, you know, if I'm looking at somebody like Chris Christie, you know, Chris Christie, he beat John Corzine and he beat... Um, I can't even remember her Bono, name. Bono, Mary Bono. No. No. Barbara Bono. Yeah, Barbara Bono. Barbara Bono. That's right. <laughs> um, or, you know, if I'm looking at somebody who, you know, built up large leads um, against nobodies, you know, like Ted Cruz down in Texas. Yeah, he won by a ton. Yippee-yay-o-kaye, but he beat Paul Sadler, who's an, a really a nobody. Um, okay, I'll be a little devil's advocate. You know, Chris Christie crushed Barbara Bono because he was seen as a juggernaut who he scared away good opponents. I'd say the same thing is true with Hillary Clinton. You know, she beat Rick Lazio, who wasn't the top opponent who could have uh, faced her. And then she beat John Spencer. John Spencer, the mayor of Yonkers. Yes, who's, I think, no longer even with the Blues explosion. <laughs> so how do you take that into account, or do you? Well, I would say, you know, this is one of the things whereby... We're balancing many different things. And one of the things that I think illustrates, you know, Christie's um, Achilles heel is look at where he is right now popularity-wise. The fact of the matter is, yeah, he was able to, you know, win a big margin in 2013. But now his approval ratings are south. They're underwater. His disapproval is higher than his approval rating. And even compared to the fact that New Jersey is a relatively democratic state, uh, he's simply just not doing that well. Who'd Marco Rubio beat? Marco Rubio beat Charlie Crist and Kendrick yeah. Meek, and those were not bad candidates at all. And the fact of the matter is that, you know, I would say that Marco Rubio is a guy who has shown an ability to raise money in the past, has shown an ability to be maybe not as popular as Jeb Bush was at his height, although keep in mind Rubio is running on a national for a national office and not a statewide office. Um, but the one thing that I would keep in mind about Rubio is, yeah, he was able to beat these guys, but he's only won runs once statewide. And that was in a very good Republican year. Can he, you know, does can he actually win more than once? And the fact of the matter is that when we're looking at the swing state analysis, I took into account how many times did you win in a swing state? And Rubio has only done it once versus Jeb Bush, who's done it twice versus Scott Walker, who's done it thrice. Yeah. Except for the fact that the candidate might be Jeb Bush, I would say if I had to bet for anyone to be on the Republican ticket, I would say Marco Rubio. Because if he's not, if it's not Jeb Bush, he is such an attractive vice presidential candidate. Yeah, I, you know, I think Rubio has two things going for him, right? He's young, he's hip, he's also Hispanic. But the, the latter to me is a little troubling because, you know, if I were to say, oh, you know, for myself, oh, the candidate's Jewish. Oh, that's great. But if, you know, he's wearing the top hat and he's going to shul every Saturday, for me, that's not a very big deal because, you know, we might both be Jewish, but we're on completely different sides of the water. Versus, you know, for Rubio, it might be, yeah, he's Latino, he's Hispanic, but he's Cuban. He's not yeah. Mexican. It's a completely different ballgame. Right. But the people doing the appointing might not see the nuance in that. <laughs> nuance in politics is a little bit, you know, like uh, hot fudge in a ice cream store. You don't 
you know, you, you, the hot fudge covers it all up. It's sticky. You can't really tell what's going on. It's a good analogy. Harry Anton, senior political analyst for 538.com. Thank you, Harry. Thank you. The gist is sponsored by The Great Courses. How many courses are included in The Great Courses? Hundreds of courses. So many that I was listening to Whistle Stop, which is a new Slate podcast that John Dickerson does. And he was talking about the course that he listened to in The Great Courses, which is about the plague of, I think, 1616. And I said, I got to listen to that course. Well, maybe John will listen to this podcast as I talk about another course, which is The Fundamentals of Photography. I checked in on uh, this course, which is taught by a professional photographer and a National Geographic fellow, this guy named Joel Satori, and it tells you how to use your camera, but really what it does, it tells you how to think of a camera, how to see through a camera, and you won't really understand until you get the course. You won't really understand what he's saying, and then there's that moment of aha, and I think it will change the way you take photographs forever. So... 500 courses, history, science, art, so you could get them with DVD, I, the visual with this one, I recommend. But you could also stream them, you could also do it with CD, a digital download, there's an app. For a limited time, The Great Courses has a special offer for just listeners. Order from eight of their best-selling courses, including the fundamentals of photography, get up to 80% off the original price. Order today, Go to thegreatcourses.com slash gist. That's thegreatcourses.com slash gist. Don't forget, greatcourses.com slash gist. And now the spiel, Camp David. Every once in a while, someone posts on YouTube a video of an old TV show, an old TV special, or even an outtake that the internet immediately jumps on and decides it's camp and it's not to be missed. Like that Star Wars Christmas special, or that clip of Brian Gumbel and Katie Couric being perplexed by this new thing called the internet. BMW, in fact, pivoted off that clip for a commercial in the Super Bowl. Maybe you saw it. Well, I found one of these things. Let me play you a song and tell you the story of what we're seeing. America's a song that cannot remain unsung. She's an urgent word that longs to be heard. She's a bell that must be rung. She's a heart that beats with joy and hope. She's a cup that must be filled. This is, like I have to tell you, like you don't know the name of the song, this is America is changing back to what she used to be. I first found the video because I came across the title of that song and found out there was a CBS primetime special in which the song was featured. And I said, what? America is changing back to what she used to be. America is changing back to what she used to be. feeling's moving through her that is wild and fresh and free. Sarah, in 1985, and it's not the John Birch Society singers at Knott's Berry Farms, Want to know who's singing? Well, let's just pull back the lens on this special just a little bit. And here are the two of the happiest kids in town, Steve and Edie. And I think you know that voice who introduced Steve and Edie. Let's hear that man's introduction at the front of this special. Your host for the evening, 1983 Variety Club honoree, truly his brother's keeper, Francis Albert Sinatra. And if you're scoring at home, the guy who said those words, introducing old blue eyes, was Monty Hall, the host of Let's Make a Deal. So, 
What individual? This is all, everyone's there to honor an individual. Who is enough of a celebrity to rank Frank Sinatra, Steve and Edie, Ben Vereen, who danced with Emmanuel Lewis? He actually was mostly holding Emmanuel Lewis aloft. Burt Reynolds, Charlton Heston, and Dean Martin, to whom Frank Sinatra said, Listen, ding dong, we honored him four years ago. Well, the honoree this night in this CBS primetime special was a famous former actor. It was also the sitting president of the United States. This was the 1985 All-Star Party for Dutch Reagan. That was the title, and what a party it was. A youth chorus, Vin Scully anecdotes, the fight song of Reagan's alma mater. is that Oski Wow Wow is actually the fight song of Illinois, the University of Illinois. I found no reference to Eureka and Illinois College, but not Illinois. I found no reference to Eureka having a fight song called Oski Wow Wow. There was a different fight song, but maybe this is just an example of borrowing or artifice, like Reagan would borrow anecdotes. Another example of that would be the fact that everyone in this special called Reagan Dutch. Reagan never went by Dutch as an adult, but here in this special, it was his title. Dutch. Gee, I feel funny saying Dutch. I Pretty be... strange, I must say. I guess Reagan got a little revenge when he said this to Emmanuel Lewis. And Emmanuel Lewis, we should never lose sight of what you said. Wait a minute. Even if sometimes we lose sight of you. Ah. <laughs> well, there you are, Manny. Did you hear that part at the end? Reagan calling Emmanuel Lewis Manny. Also, Reagan, funny fact, sold arms to the Iranians to fund the Contras. But tonight, that was not the focus. Here is Charlton Heston telling us why we were all there as he rhetorically clutched the twin tablets of pretentiousness and pomposity. Ronald Reagan will become the lineal descendant of Washington and Adams, Jefferson and Jackson, Lincoln, Wilson, Roosevelt. We'll also Chester A. Arthur, William Henry Harrison, but go tell it to the mountain, Chuck. So here we are tonight, his friends. We watch him laugh. We see Nancy's foot tap to the music. But we know, sir, you are us. To the world, you are America. Your yes is our yes. Your no is ours. You speak to mankind in our name. You carry the torch that was... Okay, okay, we gotta, we gotta bail out now. This is the corniest. This is the treacliest. This is the most gloriously cringe-inducing thing I have ever seen. It would be galling if it weren't so eminently mockable. All of those claims about how Reagan respected and loved the office of the presidency. He always put on a suit jacket before he went to the Oval Office. Oh my God, if Obama ever talks to a YouTube star. Ronald Reagan here is doing a primetime special where he shook the hands of 50 members of a youth chorus, all dressed in dashikis. It's supposed to represent the whole world. There's maybe one Dutch girl, but lots of dashikis. If the literal transcript of this were all acted out on a Simpsons episode, we would say quality satire. But you know what? People love this sort of thing, and I think people still love it. There would be an audience for this if the rest of the media hadn't become so, I mean, I guess you could say cynical, but I don't think that's really it. 
I would just say schmaltz resistant. So how does it end? How does this whole affair end? Here now is the culmination of this primetime special. It is not Dean Martin being named the ambassador to Scotch, ya ding dong. It's this pronouncement. We are proud to announce the Ronald Reagan wing, which will be dedicated in your honor right here in the University of Nebraska Medical Center in Omaha, Nebraska. Right. Ronald Reagan. One of the greatest presidents of the 20th century. He was, he was, in terms of power, in terms of influence, in terms of regard. Debate that all you want. Hey, there was a serious attempt to get the guy on a piece of currency. Ronald Reagan's name. This is how the special ends. Ronald Reagan's name being affixed to a hospital. Sorry, not a hospital. The wing of a hospital in Nebraska. Which is, to quote... If the not majestic, then certainly purple words of Sir Charlton Heston, squarely in that broad swell of continent between those shining seas. Let me say for all of us, Mr. President, in the words of a song you'll remember, God shed his grace on thee. The Gist Facebook page is facebook.com slash slate gist. I have posted that Reagan video there. It has gone so far all but unseen. Let's change that. Here to honor the Gist managing producer, Joe Meyer, please welcome Ava Gardner. And now with a song in his heart, a trick up his sleeve, and a huge chip on his shoulder against Johnny Carson, here to honor executive producer Andy Bowers, it's Joey Bishop. The Gist is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash P-A-N-O-P-L-Y. And here to perform the Gist's fight song, Yippee Yippee Yee, bears words in vexillology. It's the original Vaughn Trap family singers, two of the three Mandrell sisters, Alan Thicke and Alf. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Dan Coyce, host of Slate's Audiobook Club. This month, we're discussing Paula Hawkins' mega best-selling thriller, The Girl on the Train. Is it the next Gone Girl? Subscribe at iTunes.com slash Slate Podcasts.